Welcome to the Weatherby's Private Bank Creating the Future podcast series. I'm the Chief Executive, Roger Weatherby. On the 1st of October 2019, we held our second Creating the Future conference. The speakers invited us to consider some of the world's most challenging issues. For more information about Creating the Future, please follow the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this talk, and thank you for listening. The next speaker is a social entrepreneur, but he's also an environmental lawyer. He's the founding CEO of an extraordinary organization with huge influence, and he's been listed as one of the top people in the world who could change the future of the world. It's a great pleasure. Please give him a huge and reminiscent of that Beatbox Academy spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful Mr. James Thornton. <laughs> it's traditional to say that it's hard to follow that act, but in this case, it is really true. Uh, uh, so uh, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about what citizens can do, uh, citizens can do to empower themselves and to empower other citizens in the face of potential environmental catastrophe and climate change. Now, uh, it's very easy to get depressed about uh, climate change and the loss of nature. You'll know how the curves go. Uh, nature is going like that. Temperature is going like that. These are exactly the wrong directions for both curves. The thing that we've thought at Client Earth for a long time is that our work essentially is on the side of the Earth, hence the name Client Earth, that it's on behalf of all of you as citizens of the planet. But it was really uh, designed to save civilization. Now, until a year ago, uh, that seemed like a very radical way to capture the dynamic of what we were trying to do. But in the last year, we've had Extinction Rebellion, and you're going to hear from that today. We've had Greta Thunberg uh, making uh, very articulate pleas that are being listened to. And you had uh, the, um, uh, you've had the broadcasters uh, saying uh, those words that we need to save, save civilization. So it's a, it's a reasonable thing to think about um, how we do that. Now let me tell you about Klein Earth and what we do. So uh, we're a group of lawyers. Uh, many of you will work with lawyers frequently. Few of you will work with lawyers who uh, set themselves up as a charity. Uh, so we're, we're a charity, uh, and we, we work inside as charitable employees. We pay ourselves uh, often something like about 10% of what people would make in the, in the commercial world. And the reason uh, for doing that is this dedication to, to the earth. We called it client earth because the idea really is that instead of traditional clients, instead of people coming in with their commercial or personal problems, we would try and listen to the problems of the earth and all its inhabitants. And if you do that, if the earth is your client, how do you interview your client? And the answer is you listen to the science because the earth speaks to us in the grammar of science. So you listen to what the best scientists are saying uh, about environmental problems. That's the first thing. And then you try and capture the best of that science in policy. You take that policy to legislatures, uh, parliament in Brussels, London, and so on, parliament in uh, Congress in Beijing, and you help write good laws, good laws that capture as much of what the scientists are saying into a system of rules that those regulated communities designed to be affected by the laws will find reasonable and will comply with. Then you work on the implementation of those laws, because once laws are passed, they're not self-enforcing, 
and regulated communities, uh, industry often moves in the opposite direction from what is in the public interest. So you need to pay attention, be aware, work with the agencies that are implementing the laws to make sure they do it right, and nudge them when they don't. And the ultimate nudge is enforcement. So uh, bringing cases in court against governments and companies when they do the wrong thing. So I want to give you some examples of, uh, of the work uh, that we do to show you what citizens can do in several dimensions. And uh, in honor of the air uh, work we were just hearing about earlier, the artistic work, I'll tell you about our work on air. And then I'll uh, talk to you about our work on energy and stopping coal-fired power stations. And then I want to share with you some very exciting work in China. Uh, China is celebrating its 70th anniversary as a communist nation today. And what is unknown in the West is the fact that at the same time as they get press, not, uh, not without one being able to understand why, about human rights, uh, what isn't seen in the West is the remarkable degree to which uh, they are cleaning up their own environment uh, and becoming willing to be environmentally responsible beyond the Chinese borders. It's a very big story, and it's a very hopeful story. So while it's very understandable to look at environmental issues and become depressed at the possibility of doing something about it, and it's a common experience, it may even be a psychologically necessary experience in order to move beyond that to a place of action. I want to share with you a message of hope today. Hope that there are things citizens can do. Let me illustrate that. So in 2010, so Klein Earth first, I, I founded it uh, in, 20, uh, in uh, 2007. In 2010, um, I looked around, we looked around at uh, air quality in the UK and throughout all of Europe and saw that it was by government published numbers of appalling quality. Uh, 400,000 people or more a year died early of air pollution throughout the EU. Astounding in such a developed part of the world, but true, largely as a result of diesel pollution. Uh, and the question then is, could you do something about it? Because if you could do something about it, it would not only improve the public health, it would also do something about climate change, because diesel bad for climate change, uh, and it would also be empowering to citizens uh, and hopefully move the market in the right direction. Because one of the themes I want to keep coming back to in my talk with you today is that citizens, by using the enormous leverage power of the law, can also move markets, move markets in the right direction. Because it's really all about the money. Whether we as a civilization are investing in the right things, whether we're investing in the future, or whether we're investing out of habit uh, in things that have caused the problems. So back to air quality. No one had tried to enforce this, the law that goes all the way across Europe about air pollution. We started in the UK, and in 2010, there were numerical standards for a toxic gas, NO2, that came into operation. In London and in 30-some other cities and towns in the UK, uh, the air pollution was much higher than what the standards allowed, often double or more. So we sent a letter to the UK government. Uh, I had become a solicitor here by that time. Uh, and I had been a, an American environmental lawyer. Uh, and I learned as a solicitor that one writes a very polite letter before suing somebody. It was a new thing for me. Uh, <laughs> but I try, and, I try and be culturally appropriate. Uh, so we wrote a very polite letter to the UK government saying, surely you know what the NO2 standards are. 
undoubtedly you have every intention of complying. And without any hesitation, you will share that information with us on behalf of the public, will you not? And they wrote back, and it was the most amazing letter I've gotten in my life. Uh, they wrote back and they said, uh, we agree with you that we're in violation. You're using our own numbers. We don't dispute them. However, and, oh, and we, we, uh, we agree with the date. It's 2010 now, and we need to comply by now. However, we have no intention of com complying until at least 2025 or 2030, because it is not convenient to do so, even though 40,000 people a year in the UK dying early of air pollution. Not convenient to do so. So we take them all the way up to the Supreme Court in the UK, uh, and this was perhaps an early foreshadowing of the remarkable result Lady Hale delivered her decision on Brexit the other day. We went up to the UK uh, Supreme Court. Uh, the government stood up in the Supreme Court and said, we have no intention of complying. And you, the Supreme Court, and the barrister actually wagged her finger at the Supreme Court. I don't recommend it. Um, said, and you, the Supreme Court, may not order us to do so. Uh, Lord, Lord Carnworth uh, said um, to us, well, what do you want us to do? We are only the Supreme Court. It's a wonderful question. <laughs> so we said you could issue an injunction requiring the government to come into compliance, which they did. And it was the first, uh, second injunction they'd ever given, first environmental injunction in their history, ordering the government to bring the country into compliance. As soon as we got that, we brought the same type of action since the law across Europe is uniform in uh, what's now 15 countries, starting in Germany, starting in the heart of the motor uh, industry, so Dusseldorf, Stuttgart, Munich, and uh, their violations also very high. And we got the judges to ban diesel vehicles in the center of those cities. Now, this made the motor industry in Germany, which was very tied to diesel engines, unhappy. Cases went up to the uh, highest court in Germany where we won. Same day, uh, Chan Chancellor Merkel, otherwise quite good, gets on the, t <laughs> gets on the TV and says, uh, this decision, uh, don't worry about it. It's not as important as it seems. And we thought, not as important as it seems. Obviously much more important than we even dreamed. Uh, so diesel sales, uh, partly as a result of this, uh, have fallen in Germany by 20% so far. Uh, sales of diesels in the UK by more than 20%, according to the FT. Uh, and there you see beginning to move the market, beginning to move the market towards electric uh, vehicles. Then if you do that, uh, how do you produce electricity that is going to be environmentally beneficial? What you want to do is you want to stop coal-fired power stations. So one of the earliest things we did was to take on the job of preventing all new coal-fired power stations in Europe. We took on that job when we were 10 people. <laughs> um, one has to have big ambitions. Um, we're now 165 people with offices in London, Brussels, Berlin, Warsaw, Beijing. Uh, but we have managed to uh, stop a whole generation of coal-fired power stations in, in Europe. None have been built since we, since we started this uh, campaign against building new coal-fired power stations. And now we're working on closing existing stations. Uh, we just sued last week in Poland the largest coal-fired power station in Europe, which is the second largest in the world, with the intention of closing it down. There was an attempt very recently, and this gets into markets again, uh, and gets into uh, using corporate law to protect the environment. No other group in the world has put together a group of cor corporate lawyers, corporate law, securities law, pensions law, law of fiduciary duty, uh, and so on, 
uh, and put together these legal experts and said, how can you use the levers in these areas of law uh, in order to help stop climate change? Well, we did that. The result was a case that we brought earlier this year uh, against an energy company that wanted to build a coal-fired power station. Again, this was <coughs> excuse me, in Poland. And we bought shares in the company. Uh, we commissioned an independent financial analysis, uh, which said that the investment was a bad investment. Investing in coal was bad, because you're able to demonstrate that the price of renewables has gone down. The price of coal is actually going up. Markets don't want coal. This was simply a bad investment. Uh, that was a third-party analysis. Bloomberg agreed with it, which is very helpful. Uh, then uh, the idea was uh, to use reason and persuasion uh, to persuade the company not to build a coal-fired power station. Reason and persuasion didn't work, so what do you do? You write a polite letter. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so we wrote a very polite letter, uh, and we hired the best securities lawyer in Poland uh, to represent us, and we, as shareholders, sued the officers and directors of the company for making a bad investment, for breaking their fiduciary duty to us as shareholders. No one had ever done that in the world. Uh, and the good news is that we won. Uh, yeah, really good. Uh, what, uh, what a number of bankers, it's my favorite case in a way, uh, because it's only about the duties within the body of corporate law, uh, within the body of normal law. So that it shows you these arguments uh, about what is good for the future have moved into the realm of everyday experience in such a way that the old duties, which are very powerful, have become actuated. And they become actuated in such a way that we as citizens, you as shareholders, can use them in order to move decisions, investment, and society in the right direction to create the future. So uh, that, that's, a really, that's a really good one. Uh, what do we do after that? Well, who's financing all these coal plants? Banks. Uh, HSBC does. Uh, Barclays does. Uh, Roger told me earlier that he had no intention of... Uh, investing in any coal plants. I was very pleased to hear it. Um, uh, but uh, banks in the US are doing it, banks in South Korea, banks in Japan. Now, uh, according to the, our hedge fund friends and other investor friends, the banks doing this after our victory as a shareholder are somewhat exposed because some of these investments will be provably bad from an economic point of view or provably very risky. And the banks are very highly leveraged. So one can begin to imagine shareholder actions against banks which invest in fossil fuel projects, beginning with coal, and having them be successful. So if you could turn off the tap of financing to the coal plants, the great news is that the investment would move in the right direction. So we believe. Now, let me tell you about uh, China, um, because it's such a great story. Uh, I was invited into China in 2014 uh, to help the Supreme Court of China write a new law uh, because they wanted to allow citizens to bring enforcement actions against polluting companies, including those owned by the state. I was amazed. We were behind closed doors my first trip to Beijing, and I was prepared to give them the seminar. But I said, this is amazing what you're doing, and uh, I just want to congratulate you. Before I tell you what I think you need to do in order to make it work, I want to congratulate you. This is revolutionary. And the senior Supreme Court judge said, James, revolutionary is a big word for us. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I could love these people, uh, which I learned to do very quickly. So I helped them write that law. Citizens can now sue polluting companies, including those owned by the states. 
I went back uh, and met with the same judges and they, three months later and they said, we've taken everything you've sent us and we've written it directly into the Chinese law. Uh, and this was a meeting in the Supreme Court building and then he said, what do you want to do now for China? And I said, well, you've done the remarkable thing nobody else in the world has done since you really, really want to move uh, towards environmental protection as rapidly as possible. Uh, you've understood the problems, and there's a good story in that. You may get into questions. But you, you really want to do that. You've created a cadre of 3,000 environment court judges just to hear environment cases, to push through cases, to create a climate unlike you have today in China where companies realize that they need to comply with the laws. Uh, it doesn't exist. How do you make it happen? You set up, in their view, uh, 3,000 environment courts to only hear environment cases and prosecute the guys who are polluting. So a uh, judge said, they need training. Uh, and I said, okay. And he said, are you prepared to train them? And, you know, you have to be entrepreneurial. So I said, sure, where shall I start? And he said, with us. And I said, the Supreme Court. And he said, yes. Uh, what do you want to learn? I said, and he said, you're uh, one of the most uh, expert people globally on climate change litigation. Could you come back and train us? Uh, sure, I said, but why? And the answer blew me away. He said, because we want to foster some of the best climate change cases in the world, in China, and decide them here so that we can become leaders uh, in using law to stop climate change. That's been very successful. We've been working with them. We've trained hundreds of judges. Uh, and then the prosecutors came to us, Chinese prosecutors, a year later. Uh, and they said, the judges love what you're teaching them. Uh, and we teach them by bringing in global experts uh, from many countries, so they get many points of view. So the prosecutor said, the judges love what they're getting. Can you train us? In that law you helped write, you will remember that we, the prosecutors, got the right to bring cases against the government on behalf of the people for the environment. Uh, and I said, yes, I very well remember that. And they said, you know, the thing is, we've never had the right to sue the government. You sue governments all the time, and you always seem to win. Can you train us to sue the Chinese government? <laughs> so you have to be entrepreneurial. <laughs> So we started training the Chinese government. And the first full year of uh, operation in bringing these cases uh, uh, on the environment was 2018. So we sat down at the beginning of this year and said, how's it gone? And they said, oh, we, we're very disappointed in our progress. I thought, well, 10 cases. How many cases have you brought? We have initiated only 48,000 cases. Uh, wow. Uh, and they've settled most of them. Uh, the ones that they are bringing to court, they're getting almost 100% uh, victory. And we said, why? You know, is that just because the judges do whatever you want? And they, to their credit, said, no, you should know that because you're training the judges. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and then much else going on in China. So I mentioned biodiversity. Uh, the, um, uh, the global conference on biodiversity uh, is happening in 2020 in China. Uh, it's the 10th anniversary of the global treaty on biodiversity, which has not yet worked. Biodiversity is going down. Uh, there's an opportunity to create a new global agreement that actually will save nature. And the interesting thing is the Chinese are very keen to do that, very keen to do that and be leaders globally on protecting biodiversity. But because we're very trusted partners of the Supreme Court, the prosecutors, the Ministry of Environment, the Chinese version of the SEC, which asks for our advice, uh, the Ministry of Environment, which is the host, came to us and said, would you be willing to advise us on how to set up this global conference on biodiversity and what we should be doing in order to get the right treaty. 
So that's a, it's a great honor, and it's a, it's a very remarkable position to be in, to be able to try and bring the best ideas from the world and the best ideas from all of the NGOs in the world, because we work with NGOs all over the world. And then over the next 10 years, the hope is to take our action to more and more countries, to work with citizens everywhere, to empower them. In China, we just got a grant from the MacArthur Foundation yesterday, American Foundation, uh, $500,000 to... Uh, that we can pass through to Chinese environmental NGOs to start bringing cases. Remarkable. Uh, and we want to do this kind of work all over the world with citizens all over the world, train them, empower them, give them the tools to be able to defend their own environment and therefore the global environment uh, with a high level of expertise. And I think it's possible. One of the things that uh, happened this year is that the uh, David Gilmour, the guitarist of Pink Floyd, auctioned in Christie's in New York is 127 guitars. Remarkably, he then called up, or, or before, just the day before the auction, and said, my wife and I are interested in climate change. We've looked around the world. You uh, are the group that we think uh, is, has the highest leverage in trying to stop climate change. We'd like to give you the proceeds of that sale, uh, which come out to be exactly a year uh, of our entire budget, so 13 and a half million pounds, which allow us to start new projects. So uh, all over Asia, coal plants are being looked at, being built. Uh, the idea is to work with local NGOs to stop that. The prosecutor general of Brazil a few weeks ago invited me to bring client earth into Brazil to help her use law in a skillful way to stop the fires in the Amazon and so on. That's one of the other things we wanted to start. There's much to do but there's much hope because citizens using the enormous power of the law, I do believe, can empower each other to save civilization. Thank you very much. Thank you. James Thornton, leverage, what an amazing word that is. It's Archimedes, isn't it? Give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I will move the world. Um, what a humble way to tell a potentially world-changing story. James Thornton, let's have it once more time. For more information about creating the future, please follow the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this talk, and thank you for listening.